This week on FX Guide TV. We have part two of our coverage from SIDGRAPH 2012 where we look at some killer, well, killer cool robots, motion capture rigging, and the latest nuke advances from the foundry. This and more coming up next. Available now from fxphd.com, all new speed grade fast forward training. Download immediately all 10 classes and footage covering CS6 speed grade. Check it out at fxphd.com. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. Here is part two of our coverage from SIGGRAPH 2012 in LA. An exceptional year with great talks as well as a strong set of production sessions and companies in attendance. Hi, well welcome to our second uh, episode of FX Guide TV coming to you from SIGGRAPH. I'm Mike Seymour and uh, we've got a good show for you uh, this week. Obviously you saw the last show where we covered some of the tech and the lead up uh, effectively to SIDGRAPH and a bit of look behind the scenes. Well, this time we're going to show you some really unusual things that we've discovered and one of them I must admit is the uh, emerging technologies. Now I'll be the first to admit that we've done emerging technologies in the past and it's always been a bit kind of fun because it's kind of geeky, weird and I don't know, almost a bit silly. But I have to confess this time I went in with that expectation and found something that I thought was actually surprisingly, well, incredible actually. It's the work of Tokyo University. They've been putting together robotics now for about 30 years and here at the show in Emerging Technologies, in addition to all the other fun stuff, they had a really serious case of uh, applied robotics. So you have an operator that's sitting in a chair that has a head mounted unit that actually has sensors to determine head orientation and then gloves on their hands and those gloves and the head controls are controlling a robot which you can see behind them. Now what happens is as they manipulate things they're seeing in stereo from the robot's point of view which allows them to interact with people, allows them to perform tasks and if that wasn't enough it goes back the other way. Um, now I got to try on the sensors and what's happening is the robot itself is sensing information and sending that to the person in the chair and so you actually feel hot and cold on your hands. You actually feel vibrations for soft and smooth uh, fabrics for example as you can see here and the way it works is that in fact it converts that sensation of texture into sound waves and those sound waves are what are projected at your fingertips so on three fingers not on all five but on three fingers you actually get to sense objects so you can spatially coordinate yourself in stereo you can manipulate objects and you can actually sense pressure as you're applying them is this a completely valid technology right now? Well obviously probably not but it's clear that this has come an incredibly long way and we're not far off having a unit like this as something you would really possibly want to consider maybe in a few years time for an emergency situation with a gas leak or, or even worse perhaps some kind of nuclear accident. Well in addition to that kind of tech we also have people presenting really interesting things here at the show and one of the things that we found really interesting was Ikinema which is basically a motion control rig. I'm going to Cross now to an interview I recorded earlier today. So thanks so much for joining us, we really appreciate it. I've been really excited about the work you're doing, but of course, being slightly arrogant, I assumed that you'd come to the visual and effects industry first. And then I discovered you started in gaming, but in fact that isn't even where you started. You started before gaming. Where, where does the company come from? Oh, it's an interesting story. We started actually from Space Coast Control. Which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, around five years ago now, um, we were working on controlling satellites uh, with one special actuator and then we discovered that we have an algorithm which solves other problems as well in robotics and from robotics we recognized that computer animation is a natural choice to move on. So you went then into the gaming industry which again has its own set of criteria which of course in particular is uh, 
very performance based. Uh, and really, what, what, a couple of years ago now that you first Yes, that's space? correct. Yeah, that's correct. We started with the gaming sector. I mean, the benefit really and, and that the IP offers is speed and quality of the solving. Um, and uh, immediately during about that games is a natural choice um, because we want to see better quality uh, animation in games and customizing animation in games. And this all requires a full body solver for humans and non-humans. So I'm going to talk about one of the areas that you do because obviously we we, we can, you know, I could talk about the stuff that you do, at, which is interesting, at uh, a more sort of almost consumer level or, you know, but at a sort of serious production level. Explain to me how your system hinges on this idea of digital puppeteering and avoids some of the steps that we've been used to with motion capture and stuff. Okay. Um, I mean, in traditional motion capture setting, um, the proprietary hardware that provide the motion capture, use rigid body solvers. Essentially, this is uh, um, a set of individual solvers connected to individual bodies, um, this part of the arm, that part of the arm, and so on. And this is all then coupled together. Um, but the problem there is that if you lose some of the markers that track one rigid body, then the whole figure collapses because your arm disappears. Right, so it's rigid body into an IK solution. That's correct. Like motion builder through to Maya kind yes, of thing. Yes, and, and the traditional pipeline is solving in those softwares, then passing it to Motion Builder and from Motion Builder retargeting to your final CG character. And what we do is quite different. We have a global solver for the character, which is very fast, and it allows connecting the markers as the actor plays on the actual end product, the end CG character. And as long as the markers are reliable, we can produce this motion very correctly and very close to the real actor that performs. So how early are you getting the data? Like how much do I have to pre-process the data before I... Most of the application at the moment is actually on pre-processed uh, pre data. Um, and this is at a less post uh, later post-production phase that we we've, um, have an application of the solver. Uh, but it's interesting that um, we want to bring this post-production quality during performance capture and we are moving more and more into adding robustness to the quality of the markers and deciding whether we want to rely on one marker or not rely and bring this solver which is used for post-production during performance capture and this is one of the projects that we're working on. So when I've done motion capture one of the things that tends to cause it to fail is not when somebody's standing there at a demo doing this at the SIDGRAPH it's when you get this kind of motion, like very subtle kind of vibration, and then that everything just goes haywire. How does the system handle filtering and getting accurate uh, solutions? I mean, at the moment, we actually don't do any filtering. Uh, having said that, um, the markers that usually have this vibration can be excluded from the solver, and being a digital puppeteering and having a full body solver, you can rely on much less number of markers. So as long as you can identify that those are unreliable, you can exclude them and carry on with those that are reliable. So now, what I like is, of course, then taking your digital puppeteering and very easily integrating it with things like uh, physics or the PhysX thing, which you showed um, a couple. Just you want to explain that because you showed that what a few months ago now, and I thought it was awesome the way that uh, combined Thank together. Thank you. Uh, I mean, because we have a very um robust uh, and generic uh, retargeting engine, we can actually retarget on a single character from several sources. And so part of the bodies um, that you are solving can be actually coming from a physics source. So you can imagine that you have one arm that is physically driven, but the rest of the body comes from motion capture or keyframe animation. So it's quite interesting that you can blend all these inputs into the character. Now, most of the interest on that one is actually in games. Uh, having said that, now 
when you bring virtual production during performance capture, it starts getting interesting to bring physics on top as well. So you can have an artist performing in the scene, but then you can enhance the performance with physically objects moving uh, in the physics world, in the virtual world. Okay, so give an example of that um, and, and how you can build up. So if I was in a motion capture space, it'd probably be really flat and I'd be walking. But if my character was walking up a hill, my center of gravity would move forward. Now you can just move, obviously as part of the overall process, move that center of gravity and the character forward. So even though the motion capture artist is walking pretty much vertically, the digital output, of course, has a character leaning into the hill. Uh, that's correct. And, and on top of that, you can actually even adjust um, feet, orientation, and position so that you can follow the, 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 the hill correctly, although the performance artist is actually performing on a flat surface. And then this builds into the stuff to do with balance and forces. Can you talk to me about how I could set up a character to deal with forces like a wall or, or balancing? Um, I mean, in our a full body solver, we have three types of inputs. One is position orientation of a bone, which comes from the motion capture data, and you have a, a, a third input, which is the force input on the bone. So for example, you can emulate someone pushing you, and when you combine the pose comes from coming from motion capture and animation with the force on pushing you, which can have direction and magnitude, you get a new pose which, which essentially in a, in a very realistic way describes how the, the body looks like. And most importantly, you can do this on quite many characters in real time. And this is, uh, we've been talking a little bit about gaming. Talk to me about its application into live action. You've got a project at the moment, haven't you? Uh, that's correct. So uh, we decided it is time now to bring the solvers from post-production arena to the real time, uh, motion capture uh, and performance capture. Um, and we've tried at the beginning with, uh, with our Maya plugin, uh, and we had the real-time streaming from motion capture systems, uh, but we recognized that the, 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 the viewport in my is quite slow to actually have good quality lighting shading um, uh, during the performance capture with the solving on top. So we've decided to bring this new project um, called Life Action, where you set up all the scene in Maya, uh, but then you preview the action in a different real-time viewport, which is done on a game type of engine technology. Oh, okay. um, but the real motion capture data is streamed from the, those, um, from the systems to live action, and then you can see the actor performing in a virtual environment. So in other words, what you're trying to do is let Maya do what it does well, and then use some other technology to do stuff that Maya wasn't specifically designed for, which is like real-time Exactly, uh, exactly. So feedback. we are essentially bringing out the viewport of Maya in real-time, and as long as you can set up the lighting uh, cameras and the retargeting in Maya, we have a real-time link which allows you to modify this in Maya and see them in this real-time Yeah, because that's the, that's the big thing we want, isn't it? We want to get that feedback both for the actors, which you've obviously been talking about, but also if somebody's using some virtual camera technology at the same time that the actors are doing stuff, we need to get that feedback into a viewfinder, and uh, and that's been incredibly important in recent films. Yes, I mean, you can connect now uh, very easily props to cameras, objects, lighting, set up all this in Maya, which is an environment that pretty much every artist knows and works with, um, but then with the one but on a solution, you can click and see this in real time with the data now coming from real time streaming. And I did mention at the outset that you have some other stuff, so let's just quickly touch on that. Um, and that uh, application that runs on the web, because I think it could be of interest to people, it's kind of fun. Do you want to explain how that works? Yes, yeah, so we, we told that we want to bring also um, 
those solvers that are used uh, as a part of Maya to everyone. And we decided to develop this uh, tool that runs in the browser. Uh, at the moment, it's free of charge. Just you have to log into a web page, and then you get a viewport, uh, and all Ikenema engine is running in this viewport. So you can import uh, motion capture data. At the moment, it's only importing, not streaming from real-time systems. You can import, you can import your character, map this animation or mock-up to this character, modify, clean, and export. And now you have an asset which is animated from possibly a free source on the web. Okay, uh, but what, what I thought was nice about this, and I don't know how you do it, is that I don't have to upload my model to a server. It's not like a cloud solution where it's being sent off to, so you don't get my model, do you? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we wanted to make clear that uh, we actually to be easy on the legal side, and we don't touch your, the, your assets and your models, so you can access the models from any location. It could be local drive, network drive, Dropbox, or any um, uh, network server, and the cloud as well. But they don't go to our server, so they stay on your computer, and then we never see them, actually. I'm really excited by this. I think it's terrific. Thanks so much for talking Thanks to us. Thanks a lot, Appreciate man. it. Excellent. Thank you. So if you haven't been joining us for this term at FX PhD, this is what you missed out on this week. Thanks for that, Mike. Another part of the show here at Seagraph is the exhibition floor, where manufacturers show off hardware and software. And surprisingly enough, this was the first year that the Foundry actually had a booth here at the trade show. It's quite a bit larger here in Los Angeles than it is in, say, a Vancouver or New Orleans. And they had great crowds at the Foundry booth with some really killer client presentations as well as sneak previews of software. And that's what we're going to take a look at here in a second. We caught up this morning with John Waddelton, who's the product manager for Nuke. So I'm going to show you a bit of um, uh, you know, a sneak peek at what's coming up in Nuke uh, later this year. So this is our next release. It's going to be in beta, well, public beta. It's already in private beta. It's going to be public beta this month, so you'll be able to download it and so on. Um, I've got time to show you everything, but I'm going to just show you like some snippets of some stuff that we've got in there. Uh, so there's three main things that we focused on for this release. Number one was like workflow and polish, so updating the existing tools, making them better, improving them, getting feedback from you guys and rolling that into the release. So that's number one. Number two is like performance. So I'll show you some of that. So stuff to make your lives easier because things are going to go faster. And three is open standards. Uh, so adding some support for some new open uh, file formats. So um, we're just going to work on this plate during the shot so I can show you some stuff. So while I'm just playing through that, hopefully you can see while I was playing this green bar filling up at the bottom there. Can you see the green bar? So this is one of the things on my point two, which is a performance thing. So the green bar means RAM cache. RAM cache means real-time playback. So yeah, that's really exciting to have that RAM cache. Uh, it's been um, requested uh, many, many times. Uh, a few more things in the viewer just while I'm in there, uh, while that's playing back, is uh, just some just stu stuff to help with uh, uh, working with different formats and so on. So I, I can do stuff like this. So if I'm going to go for a 4x3, I can do some lines down there just to show you where the 4x3 is. Or I can, I can knock back the image a bit on, on the edges there or uh, you know, even, even blank them out. So this is kind of handy for working for different formats. Hopefully you can see there's a lot of texture, a lot of uh, grain in this plate. So you know, s some people's workflow is to, if you're going to comp CG into this, is to remove all the grain, comp the CG in, 
and then chuck all the grain back in. So I'm going to denoise this plate to remove the uh, grain. And I'm just going to show another feature. So let's just um, denoise this guy, hit play. So if you can see, the scan line's going down there. It's denoising this plate. This is uh, with our new denoise in uh, 6.3. I think we had a new denoise. Um, you can see the frame rate down there. We're doing about uh, not even one frame a second. You know, it's doing quite a bit of uh, computation there. So one of the other things we did for performance in this release is added um, GPU acceleration to some of our nodes. So this is really exciting for us. We've never done it before. You know, we, we use the GPU for stuff like visualization in the 3D system or doing viewer LUTs and stuff like that. We use it, but we've never ever used it for rendering. So it's the first time we're actually using it for rendering. Um, and it, it uses this framework, which um, we've been flogging for years and years, called Blink. But now we're finally put it into a, a, a shipping product. So Blink, um, the idea is we, we can write our algorithms in this thing we call Blink, and then we can cross-compile it to different targets. So in this case, we're doing NVIDIA CUDA. So we can do CUDA, and we can do x86, or you know, your regular CPU. Uh, so the great thing about this is we write the algorithm once, and it will go to these different targets, which also means that we, can, we always do a fallback path. right? So we know that everybody out there has got render farms, and not everybody's got a GPU. So uh, we make sure that there's a fallback path for both. And we didn't write everything twice. You know, we write it once in this framework, and then it, it cross-compiles to the two things. So let me show you the denoise um, on the, the GPU. Uh, first of all, you can see up in this panel up the top, there's this, anything that's GPU enabled now has that little checkbox up there, use GPU if available. In this case, I've got a Quadro 6000, so it's going to use that. But if I didn't have one, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't error or anything like that. It's just going to fall back to the CPU. Um, so on the farm or if you ship, it, ship the script to somebody else who hasn't got a GPU, no problem. It will just be slightly slower. So. And uh, let me just actually run this on the, uh, the GPU. I'm just going to press play. Hopefully, can you see the frame rate there compared to what we had before? Seven, almost eight frames a second. So it's, you know, it's, it's going about eight times faster than it would on the, on the uh, CPU. So that's really great, a bit of acceleration. So this, I think we, we did five nodes. We kind of picked the ones that were, well, first of all, algorithmically complex because we wanted to prove that framework works. And also, um, because they're algorithmically you know, complex, it means they're also slow. So we did the denoise, which I'm showing here. We did uh, Zblur, which I'm going to show you in a minute. Uh, com image convolution, uh, retiming, like Kronos. Uh, F-motion blur, about five nodes. So the next thing I'm going to show is, is, is more on updating the existing tools, is uh, work we did on the tracker. Um, so in this particular plate, we're going to add some CG over the top here, like this kind of thing here on the top of uh, this. And hopefully you can see a lot of characters walking in front of this pole here, which we're going to need to, to roto out. And I think they've done some roto up here to remove those people. Um, so this is my excuse to use a tracker, because I'm going to track some of those characters, probably help with your, with your roto. So let me open up another script, uh, just an empty script to do the, the tracking in. Yes, I do want to open the save script. Okay, so I'm going to put a tracker down, node down. Oh, I'm going to uh, track a character, probably this guy walking across across here. I'm just going to track him just to show you uh, the, the feature of this new tracker. So first of all, um, you can probably see up there there's now this toolbar for tracking. So we can go full screen and do all the kind of tracking things that you need from that toolbar up there. So it means you don't have to have the panel open and have it obscuring the picture and have it in the way. So that's quite nice. 
And uh, another thing we've got in this new tracker is this uh, new feature we call keyframe tracking. So the idea with the keyframe tracking is that you can manually set keyframes that the tracker has to go through when it does its track. So the idea with this is that um, you know, no, uh, sometimes the tracks are, are perfect, it's going to be fine, but other times there might be an occlusion that happens or a place where you know the track is going to fail or something moves off screen or you know, a myriad of different ways that the, the tracker could fail. Um, and the idea with this is rather than you sitting there and babysitting it and going, I know it's going to fail, but I'm just going to wait for it to go wrong and then start it again and then wait for it to go wrong and start it again. Uh, this uh, keyframe tracking allows you to set keyframes throughout the track that mean that when it gets lost, it just picks up the next keyframe. Normally, you don't want things to get lost, but I do because I'm doing a demo. Um, so I'm going to track this guy's head. So the first thing you'll see up in the corner is that um, kind of preview window up here. So this is really nice. It allows me to you know, kind of see uh, see where I'm setting my keyframes or uh, see where the track is without having to zoom in on the plate, which is quite nice. So I'm going to set a few keyframes here just throughout, the, uh, throughout this shot. And you can see as I'm building it up, there's like a preview going on up here to show where the keyframes are. So there's probably this many is good. Um, so it's quite nice, this preview, because you see it's yellow when I'm in between keyframes. And then it goes orange when I'm on a keyframe. And then orange and yellow and orange. OK, so we've done some of that. What I'm going to do now is start tracking that and um, watch it track. So you can see it zipping along. Oh, it's failed. Can you see how quick that is as well? So you know, Nuke users familiar with the tracker, we've done some work on making it faster as well. So it, it actually uh, never multi-threaded the, the tracking, and now it does. So on this machine, 12 core, it goes about 10 times faster than it used to. So that's, that's pretty exciting. OK, so you saw there, it tracked it really quickly. It lost it in the middle there, but it didn't stop, right? It kept going. So this is what I'm talking about, the babysitting. You don't need to. It will continue tracking. Um, next thing I'm going to show is how easy this is to, to fix this up as well. So we've got this new um, traffic light system there. So uh, what do you think the colors mean? <laughs> red is bad, exactly. So red is bad and green is good. Um, amber is, yeah, you know, not bad. So let me, let me, let me go back to uh, where this starts to go wrong and show how quick it is, uh, the workflow is to, to fix this up. So we can scoot along, go to the frame where it starts to go wrong maybe about there. And then what I can do is either move this down here or move it up in here. I can actually move the trackers from here. And then just let go. And I didn't touch any keys then. All I need to do is reposition the, the tracker thing, and it just automatically retracks. And what it does is not retracks the whole thing. It takes the keyframe before and after that spot that I manipulated at. And it goes, OK, that's good. That's good. Your new one that you put in the middle is good. And I'll, I'll build a curve through that. So let's just move along to the next place it goes wrong, move that back into position, watch it retrack. Retrack and now we're we're you know we're good enough for this the purposes of this demo anyway. Um some other features we have in this tracker is uh this thing up here. So again, uh people that are familiar with Nuke know that previously the maximum amount of trackers you could have was four, right? Now we can have a list. So you can have as many trackers as you want. Go, go crazy with it. So let's do an example and delete that one. So just say we wanted to do, uh, I don't know, track this plate and um, kind of uh, maybe do an average of a bunch of trackers because of the, you know, whatever the texture in here. Maybe it's going to be a bit bumpy. So I can track all of those guys together. Um, 
You can see how fast it's tracking. I've got eight of them running, right? It's like ripping through there. Um, and just while it's tracking, this is another really exciting thing with this tracker. See this button up here? Stop tracking button. <laughs> yeah, I can see someone up the back going, yeah, stop tracking button. So that's really exciting. So <laughs> it's been asked for quite a while, stop tracking. So yeah, that will stop the track. There's also a hotkey. So you can hit escape and it stops tracking as well. Okay, so I've tracked those guys up there. We've got like eight. Just so I want to average those guys. Um, it's really quick and easy in the new tracker. I just select them, click average tracks, and it bakes down a new tracker in the middle, which is the average. And then I can use that for my stabilize or, or whatever. Some other nice sort of uh, quick and easy uh, features is just say I wanted to do a corner pin on this window. Um, in the old tracker, you would have had to drag and drop like four expressions. In the new one, we've got a button. Create corner pin. And it's done all the work for you. The expressions are set up. It's all linked in. And there's a bunch of different modes we can do baked or um, you know, different reference frames and, and so on. Uh, what else? A couple of little things. Uh, some people said that doing uh, a pre-track filter would help sometimes. So we've just built that into the tracker so I can do different types of pre-track filters internally. Uh, sub, sub whites and um, sub whites? Sub zero or sub blacks and super whites uh, would uh, make the tracker fail previously. Now we, uh, we just clamp them and that, that uh, solves that. There's also this live link um, setting here. So lots of cool things in the new tracker. So I think you guys are gonna, are gonna like that. Okay, let's go back to the main plate um, and show you another update we've done to uh, an existing tool. Uh, so Zebler, Zebler, if you're in America, which we are. Okay, so we we did a big update to this as well. Um, so Zebler uh, does a depth of field, right? Um, I faked a bit of depth of field in this this image just with a roto and a and a and a um, and a ramp. Let's have a look at that. Um, so this is the old Zebler. I'm going to dial this up a bit. So the old Zebler, um, just while it's processing there, first of all, see the scan line going down? It's pretty slow, right? Quite painfully slow. Um, the other thing is that you didn't really have very much control over the artistic shape of the bokeh. So it was either this round shape, or those, again, who are familiar with existing nuke, um, a really nasty square shape, <laughs> which I don't know how it was like that for eight years, but anyway. Uh, the new one has a lot of different options for the bokeh shape. First of all, we have this focal point here, which is really cool because it allows us to adjust the focal point really quickly. Um, second thing is it's GPU enabled as well, so it goes a lot faster. And the third thing is a lot of control over the bokeh shape. So right now I'm doing a disc shape just like you're familiar with, but I can select like a bladed type uh, preset and I can dial the shape of the, uh, the, uh, the bokeh just by kind of tweaking some of these numbers so I can rotate it, I can you know, uh, make it more sharp or, or round. You can always just use any image as well for the, for the bokeh shape. So I've done that up here, I've just got a, got a kind of uh, shape like that and then I've kind of offset the red, green, blue to make a little bit of chromatic aberration, and then I fed that into the Zebler. Uh, we've renamed it as well. We call it ZDFocus now because it's not really just a blur. It makes more sense to call it ZDFocus. Uh, so if I do image, you can see now that I'm um, doing my 
Oh, hang on. Yeah. Doing my convolve now by this uh, image. So can you see the chromatic aberration in there? Uh, point cloud generators, we did an update to that as well. Uh, just to make uh, more pleasing or denser results. So I've done a point cloud over here. Of, uh, oh. So I can do a, a, point, a point cloud here. You can see that's quite, um, quite a nice point cloud. It's even, um, you can almost make out the sign up there and, and so on. So it's a, it's a better uh, version of the point cloud generator than we had in the old one. Um, we can also group things. So this is what I've done here, like grouped it into different sections uh, just to help with uh, you know, visualization and, and so on. And we can also create meshes out of this stuff. And we built this now into the point cloud generator. So in all versions, we had a Poisson mesh node. Um, uh, it did a good job sometimes, but sometimes it did a rubbish job, right? So it, it try, it, the Poisson mesh always tries to wrap a surface and it would give you a blob, which sometimes went inside out. Uh, and a new one uh, doesn't do that. Um, so I've got here a, a baked mesh, which I've done off this. Um, and that's pretty good mesh. You can see there, like, and the Poisson mesh would never give you something like that. It would always give you a blob. So it's quite, it's quite good. So I did a bit of fitting of some geometry through my point clouds using the, you know, the snap two functions through the point clouds. Um, and then, uh, what I've done is fed that into the scanline renderer, used the, the render camera to make a new uh, depth. So this is my new, new depth, you can see there, which is better than the faked one that I did before. And then I'm going to feed that into my Z blur over here and do uh, a defocus using that uh, new depth. And hopefully you can see now it's in focus inside the building, which uh, we couldn't have done with our fake depth before. So I've got. A few more things to do is we, we optimize the way that Nick reads uh, Alembic uh, or does geometry for Alembic. So um, uh, in one case, we had an Alembic file uh, and uh, the way that we're dealing with the, uh, the geometry using Alembic, it used six times less memory than OBJs. So that was, that was huge. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. Last thing with the open standards. So that's Alembic, exciting, really cool. The other thing which is really cool and... Um, Exciting for us is um, deep compositing files, deep EXR 2.0. So we've, we've got support for this. It's in the beta right now. Um, this allows us to read and write uh, deep files for, for compositing. But the thing that is really good about this is previously um, we had deep compositing in 6.3, but you needed to have RenderMan installed and you needed to have, you know, this is the only, the only file support we had was for deep uh, files from RenderMan. But now this is built in. You don't need to have any external libraries. You can write them. The files are smaller. It's faster. It's really exciting. So for us, I think it's going to be um, deep compositing year next year because uh, I think it's really going to take off and a lot of people uh, are going to start using it. And I've, I've talked to people from other render, you know, other, other vendors in terms of rendering and uh, they're on board writing these files as well. So it's going to open that up a lot. So that's about it for me. I haven't got any more time left. Um, that's just some of the things coming in this version of Nuke. Um, I didn't have time, like I said, to show you everything because there is a lot of other stuff in there. But it will be available uh, in public beta this month. So you'll be able to get everything and uh, all the full feature set will be revealed then. So thank you very much. And uh, see you at IBC.
Well, that's it from Seagraph. Before we wrap up, just want to mention a couple things. It's really great to see one of our FXPhD profs, Christos, presenting at the Pixar booth. Christos and FXPhD have actually done some training videos for Pixar, and you can check those out at the Pixar site. Really cool to catch up with him. In addition to that, we have a couple things at our site. A new Moving Day book directed by Jason Wingrove. We've got new behind-the-scenes stuff available in the iBook store in over 30 countries around the world. It's a free download, so visit iTunes to check that out. In addition to that, we've opened up our beta program for the FX Guide iPad app, which should be really great. We're starting that in the next week or so. So sign up for that. If you're an FX Insider member, you can get in on that early beta process. Well, that's it for me. Of course, Mike and I had a great time hanging out. Big thanks to Jeff as well, who helped us behind the scenes. Of course, Jeff has been working to deliver a job uh, in his day job over at DD. So wish you were here, but no, you had to get the job done. That's it for us this year from Seagraph. Back to Sydney and Angie. Thanks, guys. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, you may also like our other podcasts, such as the FX podcast, the VFX show, and our digital cinematography podcast, The RC. Well, until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts, and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.